This is an AMI podcast. Hey guys, welcome to a brand new year of Double Tap. It is the first show of 2023. It is the 2nd of January and we are continuing and concluding our seven days of 2022 by looking ahead to future trends. Welcome to Double Tap 7 Days of 2022, the big accessible tech review. Now, here's your hosts, Stephen Scott and Sean Priest. Hey, Sean Priest, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Stephen Scott, 2023. Who'd have thunk it, huh? We're all flying around in our rocket pads and everything. It's the future. <laughs> well, you are. Uh, I yes. am. Well, because you've got rocket pants, or, or should I say pants with rockets painted on them. Stop it. Yeah, that sounds about right. Anyway, um, <laughs> hi. How are you today? Are you well? I'm really good, thank you. Yeah, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling confident. You know, New Year, I'm optimistic. Yeah, well, look, I thought it was a nice way to conclude our seven days of 2022 by actually looking ahead to the new year and doing it by essentially looking at some of the trends that we, we saw start in 2022. Mm and that are actually probably going to be the big topics of the year. There are lots of things we could pick up on. We could talk about Metaverse. We could talk about XR. We could talk about, you know, what will be smart glasses in the future, all that stuff. But And, and we will do that because we're going to be joined by a very special guest, the chief technologist for Lenovo, Ashley oh. Rolf. He is joining me a little bit later, and uh, he's going to be talking about what he considers to be those top trends that are coming. And it's a really interesting conversation because we delve into lots of areas of artificial intelligence, but we also delve into edge computing. <gasps> yeah. Wow. This is interesting uh, stuff. This guy knows Microsoft things. Microsoft Edge. No, not, not, not Microsoft Edge. No. Edge <laughs> computing. Um, which used to be a store, actually, in Glasgow. <laughs> oh, there you go. Not, not anything to do with that either. But, um, yeah, really, you know, just getting into the kind of bigger topics. And, you know, what is mixed reality? What does it mean to a company like Lenovo, for example, which is obviously very business-focused? How yeah. does it work there? How will all this impact on business? And uh, ambient computing as well is something we talk about with Ashley. So we're going to get into all that with him. That is coming up. But before we get into all those big, big, big picture things, I wanted to start off with something a little bit closer to home, something that started a couple of years back. We certainly saw more of it last year, and I think this year we're going to see more again. And that is, uh, we, if you think back to the pandemic, QR codes became a thing. A lot of people yes. you know, might have known about QR codes before that, but you know, QR codes were a big deal. And when you were going to a restaurant, you had to sign in or check in, and you would do it online. You'd have to scan a, a QR code and all that stuff. And then came along another alternative to this, which was a better version of QR codes, which provided more information, uh, and that is called NaviLens. And um, it's, it's something we talked about a little bit on the show last year. And, and I must admit, it's it's one of those, it's, it's actually quite simple, because you can print out a QR code at home, and the difference, or a NaviLens code, I should say, and the difference between it and a QR code really is that one is... Um, you know, able to provide you with a, a limited amount of information. Possibly it might even just be a link to, say, a website, and it will just open up on your device, so that would be what a QR code can do. Whereas an Avilens code can provide information about lots of different things, products and stuff. So we get a little bit of an explainer of this from Mark Powell, who joined me on the show last year from RNIB in the UK, and he explained how NaviLens codes actually work. The difference between a, a QR code and a NaviLens code, there's a, there's a few really. I mean, visually, um, which, which, you know, 
to my, to people like myself and you, Steve, it might not be 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 as beneficial, but visually they're they're a lot more colourful. So they they use CMYK colours, um, and because of that, that means that they can be detected a lot a lot better, and they can provide more more information. So the just like a QR code where you use the um, camera in your smartphone, a NaviLens code, given the colours it uses can be detected from from a much greater distance than, than a QR code. QRs are really close proximity where, you know, a NaviLens code, which is in the same size as a QR code that you tend to find on different packaging and, and other things across, across the, um, across, across the world now, um, that could be detected from, from around three meters away rather than being, you know, really, really close. So they are, being used for multiple different things as well. So, you know, the greater the size of a NaviLens code, the more detectable it is from a distance. So really interesting just to learn about how the, the basics of this works. And Mark actually had demoed this at a train station in England, a station that you and I know well because we've been there, and that is Euston Station uh, in London. And it was really interesting because we, he gave us an example of how NaviLens codes could work in the wild. Hi everyone, so I'm here at London Euston Station, which is one of the UK's busiest train stations. And navigating these environments is difficult for everybody, isn't it? It's challenging, it's busy, there's lots going on. We all want to get from A to B as quickly as we can. But for people like myself with a visual impairment, that can be even more of a challenge, especially if we want to maintain a level of independence. Where's the platforms? What's around me? Where are the toilets? These are all questions that I ask myself every time I use a station. It's hard, unless you've got human assistance. But we've managed to change that, and we've managed to push the boundaries of technology through a pilot in collaboration with NaviLens, Network Rail, and Go Media to transform the passenger experience for everyone through the lens of people with sight loss. So let's go check it out. This is gonna be exciting. So I've opened NaviLens, I'm outside the station. Let's go have a look. So I'm getting all the departures too. Six minutes. Right, let's carry on walking. Seat two tags. Six meters away. Concourse. Continue for platforms four to seven. Right for platforms three to one. Toilets and changing places. So the really cool thing is I can select where I want to go as well. So I could go food, drinks food. and shops, button. Previous where do I want to go to? Let's go to upper cross. Monday to Sunday. Go to the upper crust. Go to upper crust. Set your journey. Yes. Button. Yes. And yes. Scanning tags started. Left. Left arrow. Left. Left arrow. So the app is now telling me in real time using augmented reality to go left. Left. So left arrow. Left. Go find upper crust. And here we are. We've we've arrived. How amazing is that? It's telling me there's Burger King there as well. But I've arrived at my destination. So really interesting to hear how that works in reality, Sean. I mean, it actually is pretty powerful, right? The the NaviLens codes give so much more information, which is brilliant. Oh, it's QR codes to the next level, right? And and more, given the departure times as you're entering the the entrance there to Houston Station, Houston Station is amazing. I, I didn't know it could give you that much detail. 
So that's one trend, but there is another which I want to pick up on because I think it is something everybody's going to be talking about. We uh, chatted with JJ Meadow on the show last year uh, from AT Guys and the Blind Bargains podcast to talk all about chat GPT or open AI, a project which is really all about, you know, discovering how we can benefit from artificial intelligence and how we can use artificial intelligence in new ways. And we sat down and had a conversation with JJ all about that here on Double Tap. So it's called Chat GPT. Don't even worry about generative pre-trained transformers, whatever. It's okay. That's what GPT is. But in essence, it's a chat bot, but it's much, much more advanced than any chat bot that has been out there before. That's what everyone's talking about. The answers that it comes up with are sometimes just baffling. It's really creative. It'll come up with stories. As you mentioned, it will come up with code. Now, as we'll talk about, it's not necessarily always correct, but just given a one-sentence prompt. So while you were talking, I said, tell a story about Steve and Sean who host a podcast. And it says, Steve and Sean were best friends who shared – or let's see here. Steve and Sean were best friends who shared a lot about technology. They've been talking about starting a technology podcast for months. They finally decided to, decided to start to take the plunge. They started researching podcast equipment, blah, blah. And it goes on for like a whole paragraph. I just told it that <laughs> little tiny bit of information. Wow. And Their that's hard and work and dedication paid off. <laughs> well, I don't know. So, see, uh, I knew fiction. it would go wrong somewhere. I knew well, it was going to go wrong somewhere. Well, then I could tell it, hey, rewrite the story and, and assume that their hard work and dedication did not pay off. And it will actually <laughs> update the story. Wow. That's, that's incredible. So is this, is this a website or something? Is this just a, an application? What is it? Yeah, it's on the web. It is in a free beta. So it's uh, chat.openai.com. We'll send it over to you for the, the okay. notes and such. By the way, I could have it write your show notes if you wanted to. Oh, do that, that sounds brilliant. I hate it. writing show notes. <laughs> You're funny. That's well, the first thing I thought of when I heard some of the well, things it was it writing. These inputs, right? So if, I couldn't just say, write a show note about JJ, who was on the show to talk about OpenAI, because it doesn't really know what we just talked about it. But I actually took one of our podcasts when we were doing CSUN podcasts for Blind Bargains. And I said, hey, uh, given this transcript, write a show summary in it, you know, in the style of a blog post. And it actually did a pretty good job of pulling out the important pieces of the transcript and wrote me a pretty coherent, you know, mind you, it was pretty vanilla compared to what Joe might write, which is a little, you know, snarky or more interesting. But, uh, <laughs> But you can also tell it, hey, no, write this in a different tone. Write this in a more sarcastic tone. Write this uh, in the style of a pirate. So, <laughs> it, so cool. but, but okay, but hang on, right? So this is the interesting yeah. bit for me is that mm-hmm. obviously, you know, like you've just said, it has to have some kind of information to go off. So there's some learning going on here. So how do you feed it that information? Are you just uploading a transcript to it and it's taking that information, or can you can you teach this thing independently? How does it work? Yeah, so first of all, it has tons of data already. So they say that it cuts off around 2021, but it has a wide swath of the internet as far as, you know, information they have scraped. So it knows about famous people, you right. know, it knows about uh, people in history, presidents, even much more minor stuff. You know, if I were to ask it uh, questions, not just, you know, about, say, even JAWS or NVDA, if it has some of that information, it can spit out information. It's not always correct, but it does a pretty good job of understanding that JAWS is a product for blind people, for instance, and it knows things like that. But you can also say, 
hey, uh, write me a show summary given the transcript I have included below and paste the entire transcript in and then send it in. And within a few seconds, it will look at it and it will uh, update and give you the notes. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, you mentioned earlier, and I mentioned, the, the coding aspect and being able to say, hey, write me a Python script to, you know, compare folders or whatever it may be. Have you tried out that at all? That, to me, seems absolutely amazing. I have. And, and actually, for really basic stuff, it does a really good job. So I had it uh, create a Python script. What I first did is I said, hey, uh, give me a list of all of the European capitals. And it did that. And that was pretty simple. And then I said, write me a little Python game that will quiz me on the European capitals. I didn't really give it any parameters. So it actually spit out some code that I ran and it, it did run successfully. Now, there were some problems. So, for instance, the first version would just give me the prompt, what is the capital of European country? So it didn't actually, you know, so I had to guide it and say, um, yep. can you please update the code and also, you know, be sure to link the company, the country to the capital. And then it go and went back and did that. So it will do coding. You're going to have to guide it and handhold it. And the more information you give it, the better it will do. And sometimes the code it generates will generate errors, but you can actually feed it. You could say, hey, uh, this code just gave me an error uh, and paste in the error and it will try to troubleshoot it. And actually, it gives really good explanations for errors. You know, this might happen because of this and explain things. You know, it's not always perfect, but it does a lot with a lot of different programming languages. I actually had it write a really simple NVDA add-on. Like, wow, that's very niche. And it knew about wow. that in the format. You know, it's not going to be perfect, but it certainly is it's really good for, I think, generating ideas and maybe like a where to start as far as I'm, I'm trying to figure out this problem. How might I think about coding it or feeding it error messages and asking it what to do with it? It's really smart in that regard. Yeah, that is so cool. And something that keeps coming up in all the articles I've read is that I spent hours on this thing. It just, it drags you in. It, you know, once you, you have a taste of what the power behind it is, you're, you're just trying every single thing. And as you said, you've spent hours on it as well. Oh, yeah. I have spent quite a bit of time. The, the story modes can be really fun because you can have it give you a story and then you can say, hey, all right, now let's do this to the story. You know, or you, know, you turn it into a TV script or, you know, bring this certain character into it. And it's really imaginative and fun to play with things like that. Maybe not the most useful. That's definitely the more the just the imaginative side of things. But, you know, you can have it do marketing text and, and you can have it create newsletter copy and press releases and things like that. And if nothing else, they give you really good starting points. I actually wrote a couple of tweets for AT guys pretty much based on information that I fed it. So journalism is dead. Yeah. Hey, we've killed journalism. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, though, but what I'm interested in is where this all came from. What is this project? Is it is it open or is this backed by a major tech company? Yeah, the company's called OpenAI. They do have a lot of uh, venture capital and funding. And I'm sure it's not going to be free forever. This is a free preview that's up right now. By the way, right. this is called uh, using GPT 3.5. And there's a version 4 that's being promised in the next couple of years that's supposed to be many times better than this. But when you feed it, say, information, um, you know, you ask it to solve customer service type questions – and especially if it has some knowledge of your company and the things that you do, if you have it has all your, the manuals for things that you sell, 
it could do a pretty dang good job of, you know, at least being a first level tech support, much better than those AI chatbots that we talk to now that generally don't really do much of anything and you end up talking to a human in the, you know, anyway. Yeah. yeah. This, I think, has a lot more potential in actually, you know, helping do those kind of automated tasks, you know, first level customer service, a lot of research type jobs, you know, basic uh, troubleshooting. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of possibilities. And I think that's what they're going to end up doing is selling it where you would pay for tokens to use this. So you, you would pay like, for instance, two cents for every thousand words or something to that effect. I yeah. mean, just imagine this this sort of technology behind a smart speaker. Or I've heard people say, you know, this is the death of the search engine. Basically, it, this is the next step. This is the—it's mm. not just an evolution of search. This is a revolution of search because the, the just the brains behind it, and also this doesn't just go off and search the web. This is self-contained. This doesn't crawl the web for answers or anything. All this info, as you sort of inferred before, there, JJ. This this is self-contained in the yep. AI itself. Yep. Well, and that's good and bad at the moment, right? Because because it's self-contained, it doesn't learn new stuff. So it will remember your responses and you can have a whole conversation. But at the end of your conversation or when you hit reset, it forgot everything that you told it. So you kind of have to ramp yep. it back up. So I would assume the final version would have some sort of way to iterate and learn more modern information. Right now, it cuts off somewhere in 2021. And this also presents... Pretty much anything as a fact, even things that aren't facts. So where Google will actually try to do a little better job at the moment of telling you that this might not be correct or just not spitting back an answer, this will give you an answer for just about anything. So, I mean, it certainly definitely has potential to replace a lot of search engine responses at some point. It seems like a really interesting way to think about what AI could be and how it could be used. I mean, it it feels almost like, like you were saying, Sean, it's the death of search, but it's also the beginnings of interaction in a, a real well, a real way you know and you imagine the chatbot becomes a robot and then the robot becomes you know some kind of human equivalent you know Our masters and overlords uh, yes. exactly and then yeah. suddenly we're having actual <laughs> conversations with these things and they're able to respond in a really you know meaningful way but you know i, I think about the the technology behind all this and how it's working and it, it is absolutely incredible how this goes i mean i was looking at one recently uh, called Descript. It's a platform, not the most accessible platform, sadly. I really wish it was. But it's a platform where you can essentially record into it, like a podcast or whatever you want, really. You can record video or audio and then edit it just by selecting the text and, you know, deleting it. And then it will, you know, adjust. But it goes further than that because it is even, you can feed it your voice. You can sort of record lots and lots of audio and you can even write sentences that you never said, and it will speak them back in your voice. And we're really starting to see how this technology is is beginning to be... Well, this is going to take us all over. No one's going to need me anymore, and I'm useless at everything. So, you know, I, a robot could easily take my job if it really wanted to. Um, but I feel, I feel it's kind of... I'm getting a bit embarrassed now because it feels like it really... It could do it today. You know, yeah, the technology has come a long way. Yeah, the uh, the <laughs> one of the immediate concerns that's coming up is uh, as far as academics and, and papers, because man, it can spit out some pretty decent research papers with you know prompts and just uh, giving a little bit of information. Now, there's a bit of a formula to them, the way it, it writes them, mm. and you know, you can kind of tell sometimes that yeah, this was written by 
this particular AI. But because man, it's not its own mind. This is what we need to remember, right? It, this has been written. So it's not like this is it. So it's not able to do this off its own back. It has to, it has to have human input in order to, and you yeah. know, and, and and this has been an ongoing argument for years. You know how these things will evolve is essentially how humans behave. So remember these stories we used to see about is AI sexist? You know because it's a lot of the code was written by men. So you know does that make it sexist? And you know it's that kind of thing that ultimately because because it can't think for itself, it has to it evolves based on what we've told it to evolve to. Well, and they've provided human intervention. So it's machine learning. So it has all the data. And then they've also provided some human intervention. So if you try to ask it certain things, it will call you out for, no, I'm not going to do that because that's racist or that that's not appropriate. Mm. And it does a pretty good job. There sometimes are ways, um, you know, that people have averted that. But, you know, it, it's trying to learn to have a moral compass. It becomes really interesting, too. You might talk, kind of talk about AI bias, right? I asked it how might a blind person use a chainsaw, which is something that a blind person could do if they you know, were practicing the correct safety precautions. But it comes back right away. Um, you might want to get a sighted person for that because ah, hate know, crime. it might not be. Ableist. Right? Ableist AI. Yeah. Now, there were many other. Now, it, it says that, but then goes on to give some hints. So it, actually, it gives that little bit of a, a caveat, but then does actually give kind of pretty decent instructions. Um, on for, you know that are more tactile in nature, so it actually will for a lot of things get pretty good instructions. But it's even interesting to see the it, the very medical centered approach for the way it's a lot of blindness type questions. Yeah, and that's although- an interesting point there, Stephen, because the, the OpenAI have come out and said, you know what, we've we've actually made a, a, an effort here, so it's not you know racist or homophobic or whatever mm. because of the other AI bots. In the past, have had real problems with that, so there is an effort for. But that, but there is there is a big ethical question there about well, who's deciding what what, what is, that is? Yeah. You know, because for example, let, let's take disability as an example. How many disabled people are involved in the creation of the code to write these programs that create this AI? Do you yeah. know what I mean? So, if you have that situation, then you actually do end up back to old attitudes coming through new new tech. And that's that's yeah. a problem. You know, that's a real and problem. Sometimes you have to give it and you can do this. You can say, assume I am a blind person that is capable of using heavy machinery. You, get, you know, provide you can you can kind of yeah. you can tell it to have a specific uh attitude or bias. But you know, you're right, yeah, sometimes this is gonna come back and make assumptions that maybe it shouldn't make. And there you know, that's a pretty minor one in the grand scheme of things, because at least it will still give you the instructions. I mean, there certainly are that are that are could be worse than that. So, you know, it's learning. I think the final version of this kind of learns over time as opposed to, you know, being a one-time model that is stuck mm. in 2021 and um, resets every day. You know, I, I could hear you listening to, to Jaws, I guess, or NVDA or whatever it was you were listening to in the background while you were reading out what it was saying about us. Um, because of course, you know, JJ, I have got super hearing because I'm blind. Um, of course. And oh yeah, of course, you know, totally <laughs> makes sense. But um, it was interesting because obviously it's, it's accessible, right? So you're able to get through this and use it. So I mean, the app, though, the website is accessible. You can get the information you're getting back is accessible. You know, feeding it information, all that is that all easy yep. for you to so use and navigate? Essentially, it's it's just an edit box that you type into and you can press enter if you want to do more than one line or a whole bunch of lines. I find it best to create your entire 
prompt in Notepad and then paste it in. That, that, that way you can do new lines and things like that a lot easier. Um, the first time you sign up, um, it will kind of send you to this tutorial mode playground. I would recommend people just skip that and go straight back to the homepage. And then you can have the edit box. And the conversation will continue to happen um, up to about an hour or two. Sometimes, especially lately, it might lock up or say there was an error because there's lots of people using this right now. So there has been some times where it just freezes up and it <laughs> gives up. Um, but it definitely, essentially, the button after the edit box is not labeled, but that's just the one you want to press, in, or you just press enter, and you'll be just fine. Have you got any worries about this, JJ? I mean, I have seen you know, a lot of people, and, and we joked about it earlier, you know, that this is the death of journalism, basically. But have you got any concerns when it comes to this replacing people in jobs and things like that? I th- I think it might replace some jobs, but also create new ones as far as there's going to be people that are going to need to understand how to work with these. You know, so instead of maybe um, just, you know, creating things on the fly, you might just use this as another tool. You know, when it comes to coding, it's not going to replace a programmer right now, but it can certainly help a coder ramp up and do things faster and, you know, create ideas. Same thing with marketing. It's not going to create the perfect press release, but it might give you a really good start. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to kind of use this as a virtual assistant. So if anyone, it might replace the hiring of a virtual assistant or somebody like that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's amazing. And, you know, when you see where we've come from, I mean, you've been using it a good bit. So have you noticed any, all the ones I've tried previously, there's always that point where you think, ah, okay, so it's reusing this phrase or that you can see a pattern in it. Have you hit that point with this one yet? It happens sometimes. I wouldn't necessarily say patterns, but there are certain things. So say I've, you know, told it to do uh, a marketing about a specific product or just, just for funsies, you know, in the, uh, in the style of a TV infomercial. And like, so if you do something like that, it'll, there are certain catchphrases that it will kind of pretty often pull in. It, yeah. it will, it's almost like Mad Libs, if you're familiar with those. You know, it would fill in the kind of fill in the blanks. It's not necessarily a formula. Like, it will be a little bit different every time. But a lot of times, yes, the starting text, I think, for some of these things ends up being very similar. That being said, the more information you feed it or the more complex prompt you give it. Uh, someone asked for, for instance, just to show how elaborate you can be, someone on Reddit um, asked it to create a rap battle between Peter and Judas from the Bible uh, write it in the style of a King James Bible verse, include the rap battle in the Bible verse and have Jesus judge the battle. And like, it took all of that and spit out rhyming verses that were ex- very accurate. Like it will take this an advanced. So it's, it's a much more elaborate system as far as understanding the totality of what you're asking to do. And usually does a pretty good job of coming back with something. And then you can, if it doesn't, if you don't like what it's doing, you can say, no, uh, fix this part or add this and it will modify it. The future is coming, Sean, and I am terrified. I'm excited. It is so cool. So cool. It's amazing. Well, more to come on future trends. We're going to be talking to Ashley Rolfe, Chief Technologist for Lenovo Next. He joins me to talk about what he considers to be the big future trends we should be looking out for in 2023. Stay tuned as we continue to review the big accessible tech stories of 2022. Next. You're listening to Double Tap 7 Days of 2022, the big accessible tech news review. Now, back to the show. 
Hey, you're listening to Double Tap. It is the final episode of our Seven Days in 2022 series. We are looking back at the year and also looking forward as we enter into 2023. We're talking today now with uh, Chief Technologist for Lenovo, Ashley Rolfe, to discuss the future trends that are uh, coming up. Ashley, great to have you here on the show. Tell us your thoughts on what uh, future trends we should be looking out for this year from your point of view. Well, <laughs> it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because I mean, I generally work in the commercial space for Sven client devices, and there's that's why I love technology. There are so many facets to it, be that consumer or commercial or uh, you know, laptops, tablets, through to data center, smartphones, everything. There's so much happening, and there is so much happening at once, and and it's making sense of it. And I think. That is really quite a good parallel to the the sort of coming of age that we have to go through over the next uh, decade or so is making sense of it, making sense of data. We are drowning in data, making um, useful sense out of it for uh, better business decisions, for uh, better life decisions and for more... um, uh, for life decisions that make sense, as we were talking about the you know the whole idea of ambient computing. Uh, so, for instance, and sorry if I'm going off on a tangent, uh, we we were, we were watching TV on the smart TV the other day, and I worked out it took me something like about a dozen um, clicks on the remote control just to get through to the, the what I wanted to watch. And uh, we're saying how much easier it was in the 80s when you just turned it on and it was there. Uh, so <laughs> we, we've kind of made lives difficult for ourselves with technology in a certain way. And it's I think what we have what we need to be excited about looking forward to is this kind of bringing it together so it actually works for us rather than us working for it. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Because, of course, in some ways, technology has simplified that process. I mean, you know, some might say, well, if you set your Amazon Echo speaker up or your Google, you know, Nest Home speaker up, you know, it might be able to take you to that content more quickly. So there are ways to do it. But, you know, like you say, it's it's not really the way you would naturally do it. It's not the way you are kind of programmed to do it. You sit down in front of the TV, you grab the remote control, and you want to just get, you point the device at the TV and, you know, you want it to do a certain thing. So, you know, in some ways, technology has moved forward in a lot of ways and it's made lots of capability happen. But in other ways, you know, some of the traditional methods we use are still as clunky as ever. TV is a good example of that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think, you know, we you know, we were talking about this concept, the idea of ambient computing, and it means different things to different people. Naturally, you know, it doesn't mean one thing. It's a collection of many things. And I see it as um, like going back to the old days, the OSI seven layer network model, This the, the fact that you have these l- layers. And we had originally, you know, the internet of things, the connectivity of everything, but having all this data, being able to see things and sense things means nothing in itself it's just data and then you know machine learning coming and saying i don't know oh i can see it's a person it's uh oh, it's a person they're outside your door and they're holding a package and then you know the next stage is sort of rules that uh, something will contact you and say there's i can see there's someone outside your door and i guess the next stage you know is bringing it all together the fact that the this integration where it will say to the person i can't get a hold of the the human in this house you know i can see you have a package would you mind putting it here 
you know, could, could you confirm who it's for, that kind of thing. So it's it's taking it to the next level. And I think it is inevitable. We're, we're just, we're moving towards that path. It will happen. Yeah, I mean, we saw a little bit of that with this OpenAI project that launched in 2022, where, you know, we saw the capability of being able to communicate with a chatbot, essentially, and get all that kind of information. And if you imagine putting that into the real world, like you say, you know, it then being able to action something on your behalf. I mean, I have a little bit of this at the moment with my Ring doorbell, where, like you say, you now have this package detection capability. But now also, you can have spoken responses. So when the doorbell is pressed, it will say, please wait a few moments. You know, it takes me a few minutes to get to the door. Um, you know, just that little bit of you know assistance along the way that can really help. I mean, obviously, that is very much information going out. That is not really uh, a conversational aspect of it, but it does show how this technology is becoming um, and how people are reacting to that technology, showing how you know, almost human it's becoming. Yeah, and actually, it's, it's interesting you, you say about the reaction to the technology because that's the big thing. It's trust. Um, so, uh, so for instance, you can you know AI is so 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 good at pattern recognition and working out. Or uh, they, within a blink of an eye, if it's a cat or a dog, but they couldn't tell you if it was a penguin if you hadn't told it how to do that. So, yeah. uh, for instance, within a pharmaceutical environment um, or a healthcare environment, you know, AIs have shown that they can outperform professional uh, medics at, for instance, um, seeing a pattern for a, a disease or whatever in an X-ray or within a scan, and they are better than doctors. Yet, of course, we trust them less. Um, so you could have an AI instead of having to, if you had a baby monitor, it's quite an emotive thing, obviously family, if you had a baby monitor, instead of checking on the baby every 10 minutes, you could rely on an AI that would tell you if the baby is woken up, but would you actually trust it to do that? And that's the thing. Trust is the, the issue here. And yet we trust our technology in some interesting ways. You know, we've talked about this on the show over the last year, how, for example, one area that I'm quite nervous to put my smart tech into is the actual key to my door, the, you know, these smart locks that you can buy. And as much as they sound wonderful, and they do, I'm really nervous about that because that's like the last line of defense. <laughs> you don't want to hand that over to a hacker, right? That They could just hack their way into my home. But equally, when it comes to paying for things, I always use Apple Pay. I don't even pick up my debit card anymore unless I really have to. You know, so in some ways, I am trusting it with some pretty big stuff, just just not in other ways. So there is an issue of trust still. I I think for uh, for it's just the human nature. You know, you you expect the sun to come up every day. You expect you know certain things to always happen, and and is your bedrock of existence. But the amount of times I've sort of walked out the house to walk the dog, and then for one in ten times, my headphones won't connect to the phone. Or, or yep. you know, as we've had problems when we've been talking before. We're talking, and suddenly that like the broadband cuts out, and and it's just these little bits when, because every time you use it, it's the most important time to you. You know, technology is so important to us, and so when it fails us, yeah, we we do have trust issues. <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. And and you know, it is the simple things that actually create the the distrust. Um, which is which is interesting, but you know, I mean, looking, at, you know, you mentioned ambient computing as as an area where growth is certainly something we're likely to see more of in many different ways. I mean, obviously, twenty twenty two is also the year of cutbacks for a lot of companies. The big tech companies having major issues um, because of the the current economic climate, not in one particular country, but across the world. 
So that has been a real problem. Um, you know, you work at Lenovo, uh, which is, you know, one of the biggest computer companies in the world. Um, and, you know, I haven't heard a lot about what's going on specifically at Lenovo in regards to this, but it seems like development is continuing. You produced and, and certainly uh, you talked to us earlier in the year about some, you know, wonderful new products that are coming out. So innovation clearly still happening there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, and um, uh, I may be incorrect, but something like one in five of everyone at Lenovo is now uh, within R&D. So we are absolutely focused on the future. I mean, if you think about it, it's only what... 120 years ago where you know we couldn't we didn't even have powered flight if you think about it, it's staggering you know yeah. the, the 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 tablet revolution really started the first ipad was only 12 years ago and so everything happens such an acute space of time massive development and you have to really be on top of your game and i think lenovo is very very good at that they pour money into r&d and actually this um yeah we're talking about sort of ambient computing and the and the future we we put ourselves in a position where we're so far ahead on uh, edge computing uh, ai uh, and computer vision and all these areas so edge computing it's quite an interesting one because it's going to be at absolutely huge but a lot of people don't know what it is or think about it but it's where you can take um high performance computing and also AI computing, neural net computing, and rather than having having it in a data center, it's it's near the action. It's where uh, the events are happening. So, if you think uh, in your home, if you ask um, Alexa or Google or other home AI systems are available, uh, if you ask it to do something, it has to send that uh, voice, that data, back to the cloud, back to the data center to, to be processed and come back to you and. With the best will in the world, that that involves quite a bit of latency just to send the information back and forth. And with edge computing, you know, that AI processing is done locally. So it's just ultimately a lot quicker. And, you know, this is an area of massive development and a massive investment for us and I'm sure uh, other technology suppliers. I'm really glad you brought this up because this is a subject that really fascinates me. So over the last year, I've been learning about computing in the cloud. And essentially what that sounds to me like is a server which is not living in my home, but a server which is somewhere else that I am connecting to. But the problem I have, as uh, and I, this is unique to me or indeed to the blind community perhaps, but you know, using something like a screen reader, you want instant response. You need low latency when it comes to using something like that. Because when you press a key, you need to know what that key press is doing instantly. You don't want to wait half a second. In fact, if it's half a second, it's a game changer. Um, you know, And this is the case that we often experience with, say, screen readers on lower powered computers. Um, we certainly find that with the cloud because, of course, the computer it's connecting to is fast. It's capable but you have that latency over the internet. Is that another aspect of this? Because that, I mean, okay, that applies to me as a screen reader user, but let's say you're playing a game. That low latency is equally essential. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think the difference is um, when we're using cloud services, we're leveraging this enormous processing power, this huge, huge processing power, uh, which, of course, you know, you're never going to have locally or in your house. But there are so many tasks now in our day-to-day -day life that can be performed uh, so, so quickly by these new 
the new AI processing systems, uh, neural networks, GNU's, threshold log- logic, whatever you, you call it. But the the um, CPU manuf- and architecture manufacturers are, are integrating this into their uh, architecture these days. And this enables us to have a much you know, just a much smaller, much more efficient processor locally to uh, to really number crunch and to work out what you need. And so you don't have to send that data to the cloud. So edge computing is, is really, really powerful. It's going to change the way we do things. And, um, you know, this is really the future for us for, for uh, within uh, across uh, commercial and consumer sort of uh, markets. Do you think it's going to get to a stage where the computing power will become so great that you know it will only be available from, say, these server farms? And actually, the reality is that the technology we have in our hands today will just connect to that via the internet, via broadband, via you know gigabit internet, but also five G networks and all of that. As all this grows, you know, essentially, you're going to just be part of this connected world, and the, the device you carry with you won't really be that. You know, important the actual device itself is. It's more about the services and the capability of what you're connecting to. Yeah, that, it's it's interesting. Obviously, the the it's it's moving data, and that's the thing, isn't it? It's moving data, uh, and at the moment we you know, we've been we've been going through this for years and years and years. Centralized computing, decentralized, centralized, decentralized, thin clients, fat clients. You know, we, this has been going in circles for donkey's years, and actually. Um, as we progress, the amount of data that needs to be transmitted and the amount of data we're producing is getting ex- exponentially bigger. You know, every year it's more and more and more data that needs to be processed. And so it's actually we're hitting the physical limits of how fast that data can be transmitted. So yes, it could be processed in, you know, in a nanosecond, but if it takes milliseconds to send the data somewhere then obviously you're always going to have that latency so until uh, they sort out quantum entanglement and instant data transfer i think localized processing and edge computing is definitely going to be a a big area for us it's actually the smarter approach isn't it because you're kind of leveraging both then you know rather than just relying on one or the other i mean you know a good example of that today would be the smart speaker where you're starting to see the power of the processing on board taking on a lot of the tasks that, you know, it doesn't, if it doesn't have to go off to the cloud to figure out what the time is, you know, because it can figure that out on board its own brain. Well, that makes sense. So do that processing on board. It means you get a swifter response rather than having to wait for it to connect to the cloud, but it may do for something else, in which case that's fine. Yeah, exactly. And and I think, as I was saying, it's moving from traditional uh, CPU architecture to the to the artificial intelligence-based um, neural net processes that will enable a lot of these decisions to be made locally. And, you know, these are decisions that we take, you know, for, for, for granted, but actually they're very difficult for a non-sentient piece of IT to work out. And it could be the thing, you know, if there is, a, God forbid, you know, a fire or in the house or someone breaks in or or anything, you would rather that processing is done locally, you know, because what if the, the broadband's down and it can't speak to the cloud? So having that local uh, processing power, or not necessarily the power, but the intelligence of the local processor is very important. What about mixed reality? Because this is going to be what we're going to be hearing about more. I mean, we started hearing about it, Meta launching the Quest Pro. We're starting to see that 
connection between you know the virtual world and the real world coming in but you know it still feels far off to a lot of people you know the idea of us all being replaced with avatars on microsoft teams sounds a little bit you know weird at the moment but you know maybe that's where we'll be in 10 years maybe even 5 years we'll be we'll be used to that but you know looking at the more broad picture i mean i don't want to get down into the the weeds of particular companies because Everyone's bringing out different products. Everyone's trying different things. But where are you at the moment? Because I imagine Lenovo's thinking about this in a big way. What is what is you know XR? What does that mean to to you guys? Yeah. So again, this is another area we're pouring. Uh, you know, we're really focused on developing. Uh, we're we're putting a lot of money into the development of it. And again, like I said, a lot of it is. It's not necessarily you think of the hardware and the headsets, you know, and that will come and that will be developed. But most of it is we, have, you know, is the software side of things. You know, the hardware is nothing without the software. And for for me, it's it's kind of weird. We're just talking about ambient computing. And ambient computing is basically the computing of things around you, and the and the metaverse is your full, you know, full immersion, and, and they're kind of at odds with each other. Um, but. I really, really, really want the metaverse to work. Personally, my my favourite book. Uh, it came out in in ninety two, but the same year the first ever ThinkPad came out thirty years ago. Is a book called uh, Snow Crash by um, Neil Stevenson, and he coined the phrase metaverse in that book. Uh, and this idea you could put on the headsets and headphones and kind of jack into an alternative reality uh, with an avatar. Now. You know, since reading that in 92, I've really, really wanted this. But there are, you know, there are issues that we have to get over. There are issues of in- inclusivity. It's not 100, it's not the best for accessibility sometimes. Um, people will also suffer from VR sickness and full immersion, you know, is a problem. But even for me, I don't like to be fully immersed in something. Uh, and the technology is a bit clunky, but it will get there. Um, it, you know, the, the thing is, it will happen and it could be in, I don't know, 10 or 15 years when we have, uh, this sort of connection direct to brain interface. I know it sounds a bit far fetched, but, you know, if you can sort of stimulate the visual cortex without having to, you know, beam light into the eyes, this, this kind of thing that might be really take it to the next level. Um, but in, in going back to your question, Stephen, anyway, we, we're really working on a, a number of platforms for commercial, uh, enterprises. Um, we do have some really, really powerful, really exciting products coming along. Uh, but for me, I feel, you know, we, we've got the hardware. It's the software that needs to be work, worked on at the moment. Yeah. And, and just on the point about XR and accessibility, because I think that's an important point you make. Uh, there is a fantastic community growing on this and the XR project, which is XRaccess.org, which I encourage anybody to go and check out, you know, is doing an incredible amount of work just now trying to work out, I think, what what accessibility in mixed reality looks like, what it means, you know, for blind people. Is it about spatial audio? Is it about positioning of, of people in space in that regard? And, and that's one solution. And what, what does that, how does that impact on someone who is in a wheelchair, you know, so there's lots of questions about how this will work. And, and, you know, I think that's a really important point you bring up, but yeah, yeah, kind yeah of- sorry. I was going to say, um, also like controller free hand tracking. Um, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So there's, there's all sorts of, you know, there's all sorts of areas, uh, that really need to be worked on. Absolutely. So you brought up a really interesting, um, Well, another area here, which, of course, yes, XR is probably going to be the topic we we talk about most next year. But I think probably when we get to the end of 2023 and we get into 24, 
We are going to be talking about this idea of these implant-type technologies. Uh, and of course, Neuralink was the one we heard about uh, this year. Of course, overshadowed majorly by the fact that Elon Musk was presenting it. So I think most people were kind of just you know focused on that and not focused on the tech itself. Um, you know, okay, I, I'm not going to ask you to comment specifically on Neuralink, although you're welcome to. But you know, where are you with this kind of this technology? Where, where do you think it's at, and how? I mean, okay, so Neuralink say six months for human trials, so that seems surprising, uh, maybe even unlikely. If that were to happen, though, how likely do you think it would be before we could start to see a product emerge out of this? Well, you know, one thing I can say is that the, the will is there, um, and I would hope to see within five years. I mean, yeah, Elon Musk is, you know, you might say he's, he has a bit of a track record of saying something's going to happen and then it takes a lot longer to actually come through. But if you sort of look at what he wanted to do, the very, very humble beginnings with SpaceX and is now, you know, just pioneering this sort of private, private uh, space expression. And, you know, he's done incredibly well just by force of will and pushing it through. And um, there's nothing that ha- creates a force of will to push things through more than a very, very lucrative market. And some stats have said that the VR XR market will be by 24 will be worth something like $300 billion. So it is an area that is in massive uh, expansion phase at the moment. And, you know, uh, the reality is for big companies, money, money, money makes them want to develop things. <laughs> and so I, I would think within the next five years, we're going to start seeing progress. It will happen. It seems fanciful at the moment, but then, like I say, we couldn't fly 120 years ago. So, yeah. So I think perspective is always brilliant. And, and that is a great perspective on this. Because you're right. I mean, it doesn't seem, it seems insane that we're, we're at this point considering where we, you know, have been. And, you know, there was a period where we were kind of wondering where the sun went at night and now suddenly, you know, here we are creating new worlds in virtual space. Um, but no, it's, it's fascinating. So, you know, overall, the picture is good. I mean, you know, despite obviously 2022's big concerns around tech and investment, are you confident that, you know, even that, even though that is the case, even though the economic climate is pretty bleak around the world, you think that innovation will still happen, and that actually the the desire to to find new ways to to make income, to build income, and build you know companies and and all of this new technology will actually drive forward this innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, you know, whatever the economic environment is, you know, development is the the lifeblood of a company, um, and you only have to look at, you know, dare I say. You know, people like blockbusters and and so on, all these other classic examples where people haven't moved fast. You ha- have to move fast. You have to think five, ten, fifteen, twenty years ahead, and you have to develop platforms and products of, for those time periods because that's sometimes how long they take to develop. So we, along with other other companies, are really pouring money and some of the best minds available into these products. I think in terms of if if you're saying about the the current uh, economic climate, actually a lot of the technology that we are creating, you know, will save companies money. And that that's the the whole point. I mean, putting the the consumer and the entertainment side uh, aside for one moment in terms of commercial solutions, you know, VR and XR can help save money for training people 
um, in particular for training people, but also for uh, yeah, for for architects to visualize designs uh, rather than building models to be able to, to walk around your design. Um, you know, to, there's there's all. I mean, we we have a we have a great example of one of our local councils uh, in the UK is using augmented reality to send out junior engineers to fix traffic lights. Uh, rather than sending the rather expensive contractors out, uh, they can send out uh, a, a lower cost engineer. They can learn on the job, and they have a, a augmented reality headset on, which sends the information back to central office what they're seeing, and the person in central office can sort of draw on their visual display to show them what they have to do. So there's all these areas where you can help develop staff, you can develop people, you can save money. It's not about technology just for the sake of spending money. And I'm not being flippant here, but that could then you know, eventually come down to me wearing a headset and getting instructions on how to build this IKEA bookcase that I'm ready to throw out the window because I can't figure out where half the screws go. Yeah, just imagine that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. From you know, customer support or you yep. know, from anything like that. And, and what that would come down to is is a better customer experience, a better CX for you. You know, you thinking, wow, this company is progressive and they they've looked after me. And so, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. It is a, a it is technology being used for good. Brilliant, Ashley. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. And uh, you know, please come back. Yes, I'd, I'd absolutely love to, Stephen. Thank you very much. And that's it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to keep your feedback coming. Feedback at doubletaponair.com. Also, one eight seven seven eight zero three four five six seven. Tell us about the stories you would be interested in hearing about, reviews and stories and topics, and uh, we will do our best to get them on here on Double Tap. We're back tomorrow. We're talking all about CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, as it gets underway in Las Vegas. We'll be telling you all about it from the Double Tap perspective. Join us for that. Check us out daily on AMI-audio. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Also find us across social media and on YouTube at Double Tap On Air. Catch you tomorrow. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.